A uh, long time ago, when I was um, in high school, a friend of mine and Greg had an international student come stay with them. And both Greg and this uh, international student were fairly athletic, and so one of the very first things that they did uh, the first weekend is they went to the Y on Saturday morning. And uh, they sort of parted ways in the locker room. Greg was going to go lift weights, and this, uh, this student who was from Europe was going to go play basketball. So about a half hour goes by, and somebody busts into the weight room, and they say, Greg, you better get upstairs, man. Your friend's about to get beat up. He's like, what? So he goes running up to the gym upstairs, and instantly he, he can see what the problem is. So there's this pickup basketball Saturday morning, and, and this student um, kept not getting allowed to play on a team. And new teams had formed, and he was never picked. And eventually he thinks, well, this is because I'm an international student. Everybody's picking on me. He's not going to put up with it anymore. He's trying to force himself on a team, and things are getting a little bit hot and heated. And um, my friend was able to, um, to instantly tell what was going on, right? It had nothing to do with the fact that this guy was from Europe. It was all about uh, the fact that in addition to wearing basketball shoes, the only other thing that he had on was a Speedo swimsuit. <laughs> now, I suppose in Europe you can uh, get selected for a pickup basketball game wearing, wearing basketball shoes and a Speedo, but... Not in the United States, right? It's not, it's not against any law, right? Congress didn't get together and, and uh, vote uh, to declare that you, you can't play basketball in a Speedo. But, uh, but in fact, it violates a social acceptable norm. And so uh, there's an unwritten rule, and, and when you violate one of these rules, people just often just back away, right? I don't want to be close to this person. Well, today we're going to look at uh, violating a different social norm. In most educated circles today, or at least in many educated circles today, it's considered very poor form to believe in evil. Since the Enlightenment, uh, it has been considered um, uh, a bad thing to um, a bad thing to believe that evil exists. We believe that that people are good inherently, and that if we can just fix society, everything is going to work. Um, but, in fact, uh, that's not the case. Now, there, there are people who violate this, and most of them don't get away with it. Most of them get, get pushed down when they do this. And so that was the case when, uh, when, when Ronald Reagan mentioned, for instance, that, uh, that uh, the Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union was the evil empire, or when George H.W. Bush talked about uh, talked about the axis of evil, right? When people do that, they're sort, of, uh, they're sort of discredited. There are a few that get away with it from time to time, but for the most part, it's considered very poor form to believe in evil. Now, um, that's a problem because the passage that we have today is going to call on us to believe in evil. We're going to see very specifically uh, that Christ is going to state that evil exists. Now, uh, before we go there, I just want to tell you, get ready. We're about to violate some social norms. But before we go there, uh, I want to just set in context what's going on with this revolution series. So far, I've made four points. Number one, when Jesus showed up, he showed up in part to start a movement, uh, a revolution. And this is 
to be a revolution of good and love and grace. And, and he wanted to push this out in every direction. Point number two, it has worked in profound ways. Jesus' cause, the, the, the person and work of Christ, has changed the world in so many ways that work, but he doesn't get credit for it. But in fact, the dignity of human life, the value of children, the idea of, uh, of, of the virtue of humility, right? Science, medicine, all these things we can trace in one way, directly or indirectly, back to Jesus. So this movement has already done a lot of good. Number three, it's ongoing. Okay? The movement of Christ, the movement that Christ started, continues today. He started it initially by commissioning the 12 to go out and preach. We saw that in the beginning of Luke chapter 9. Then, later on in this chapter, we're going to see that he sends out 72 more. He's very deliberately sending people out. And in fact, it continues today. And the church of Jesus Christ is exploding around the world. Christianity is the fastest growing faith of any type, right? Growing faster than Islam, growing faster than secularism, any worldview you would put up. Now, it's hard to believe that because it's not happening here. Uh, but Africa, Asia, Latin America, the former Soviet bloc countries, the church is growing like a bad weed. It's just in Western Europe and in the United States. Western Europe, it's in significant uh, decline. And in the United States, it's sort of stagnated. But the, the, the movement that Christ started continues today. And then finally, uh, the fourth point here is that you and I are expected to be a part of it. Uh, we are... Um, we are unable to bring it to completion by ourselves. The things that we most long for, that we pray for, that we want to see happen, right? we cannot bring about. We await the return of Christ. But between now and then, we are expected to proclaim the good news and engage in good works. Um, so, that was part of the setup. The other thing that, that I just want to remind you of is that in Luke uh, chapter 9, Luke has arranged things to try and answer the question that Herod asks at the very beginning. So, beginning of Luke chapter 9, Herod says, Wow, who is this guy? I beheaded John the Baptist. Who's Jesus? Uh, Why is he causing so much of a ruckus out there? And so, the first thing that we get in Luke's answer is Jesus feeds the 5,000. It demonstrates his power and his compassion. And by the way, thanks uh, for doing that. We had this, you know, Feed the 5,000 campaign here, and every campus brought in more food than we were hoping for. So great success on that front. We need more of these acts of revolution uh, going on. But the first thing that that Luke sets in the queue was Christ feeding the 5,000. Then we get Peter's confession. So who am I, Jesus says, and and. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, right? You are the anointed one that we've been waiting for. Then the third thing up is we get the transfiguration. So so Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go further up the mountain, and there he sort of turns the mute button off. They they get to look behind the veil and see what Jesus actually is like uh, when he's not sort of set things aside, as Paul writes about in, second, or in uh, Philippians chapter 2, right? that he, somehow he emptied himself in the incarnation. And so you get a chance, they, they had a chance to see Jesus in his glory. Well, now what we're going to get is a fourth argument 
And remember, the whole Gospel of Luke is written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And now we're getting a fourth piece of the argument in Luke 9. And this is, Jesus has power over evil in ways that no one else does. So, what I want to do is, is walk us through the passage. It was read for you. Then I'm going to double back, talk a little bit about the two big issues that get raised here, healing and evil. And, um, and, and, and then we'll close. But I want to, in Bible study, the main thing is always to keep the main thing the main thing. And so, the main thing here, the reason this passage is here, is not to talk about healing, it's not to teach us about evil, it's to point to Jesus. Okay? He's God. This is another part of the argument that Jesus has powers and abilities that no one else has because he's different from everybody else. So, reading Luke chapter 9, verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Okay, so after Jesus sent the twelve uh, out, right, and they preached for the first time, and we did something like that last week, because, because we want to be a church that is helping other churches and helping people get ready to go out and do ministry, through the eight services, we had six different young preachers preaching. And... Uh, That's just part of the commitment. We get help by all kinds of churches. We want to help other churches. So that's part of the commitment that we have to let some people uh, who are in training. Nobody was preaching their first sermon here last weekend. Uh, Some have obviously preached a lot. But um, Jesus is now, they're coming down the mountain from a little debriefing session after the disciples preached for the first time. Instead of going to the Hilton, you know, courtyard for a little corporate debriefing conference room. They just went further up the mountain, and that's where the transfiguration happened. Now they're coming down from the mountain. After they came down, verse 38, a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. From the mountaintop experience, quite literally, being with God in His glory, they descend to one of the most horrific things we can be around, and that is the desperation of a parent who can't help a young child. We think probably because of the word used here, it's kids between the ages of 5 and 10. And so, um, this is just, this is hard. Now, it's worth noting I've been making this point, made it already once in the sermon, that we seldom appreciate the way Christ and his kingdom have already changed the world in ways that work. One of the things that Jesus did was he changed the status of children. It's hard to imagine how kids were treated in the past. But in the ancient world, it was not uncommon. There's no birth control, right? Food is somewhat limited. So it was not uncommon for a newborn, especially a girl, to be left outside after birth to die. And it's, it's interesting, because there's a new argument that's sort of going around in academic circles that says the reason that the Christian, the Christian church exploded in the first few centuries right, has nothing to do with who Jesus was or the, or the, the power that Jesus had. They're saying the reason... That, that the church grew so powerfully and it brought down the Roman Empire 
was because the Christians took in all these infants that everybody else was leaving to die. So they had more kids than everybody else had. And that's the reason the church grew. And oh, by the way, they also took in all the sick people, right? And if they nursed them back to health, and we know that, that the Christians, we know from writings, that the Christians would often pick up the people that were sick with the plague. And every, you know, their family had taken them out to the street corner and left them saying, you're sick, you're probably going to die, I don't want to be close to you because I don't want to get infected. Well, so now the, the thing is, well, then the Christians, because they were taking care of these people, they got the immunities first. And so then they grew, plus all these people that they saved, they became Christians. And so that's the reason the Christian church grew. <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, you know, the fact is, Jesus did change the way we value human life. And he changed the way we valued children. They were, they were kept at bay. The disciples even tried to do this, right? Don't, oh, no, 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 don't let the kids get close to Jesus. And he says, no, I invite the kids to come close and to be with me. Let them come to me. And additionally, he says to his followers, you have to have the faith of a little child. Right? This is, this is radical stuff back then. And so, uh, so we see some of that right here. Well, I don't know how much to read into this word only, but you'll notice that the man says, please help my, my son. Uh, he's, my, he's my only son. And, you know, in an agrarian economy, pre-capitalistic society, children were often economic assets, right? Because they could work in the field, they could help fishing, they could do other things when they were still very little. Um, I assume that you've noticed that children are not uh, economic assets today. Uh, I, I have, uh, my, my boys have helped me since the stroke, and I've, I've been very proud of them, and they've helped in numerous ways, tirelessly. They've done so much more than I expected. I'm very thankful. But I've pointed out to them, uh, they're still not cash positive, right? In the grand, in the grand equation here, right? Children are not, uh, are not a financial asset. In, in an early first century setting, they were. And additionally, they were also your 401k plan, right? Because you, you took care of them when they were little. The deal was, okay, when I get old, you're going to take care of me. And so maybe some of that is what informs this guy when he says, please, please, I'm desperate. He's my only child. Whatever the case, uh, obviously... Uh, it's horrible. And Matthew and Mark tell us more about this than Luke does. The, the child uh, is, is often falling into the water in a convulsion or he's falling into the fire. So the parent, you know, whether the mom is around, we don't know. But you can imagine, even if the mom is around, it's a 24-7 deal to watch this kid, to make sure that he's safe. And, uh, and the father is desperate. Now, What's happening here, you know, the spirit seizes him, he screams, it throws him into convulsions, he foams at the mouth, it hardly ever leaves him, it's trying to destroy him. This could easily sound like an epileptic seizure, right? I mean, that, that can easily be what it sounds like. Now, for the record, that's not what Dr. Luke, and remember he's a medical doctor, first century medical doctor, but he's a medical doctor. That's not how he describes it. And furthermore, it's not how Jesus treats it. Jesus treats it as if it is a spiritual problem, not a physical one. When I was in college, uh, living in a fraternity, uh, there was a particular fraternity brother who, whenever this faith healer would come on TV, 
would invite all, you know, go up and down the halls announcing it and, you know, announce free beer, let's come watch this faith healer, yell and scream, throw stuff at the TV. And uh, I just learned, I, when, when this guy was coming on, I had to get out of the house because they'd come knocking on my door and go, hey, Woodruff, this guy, you hang out with this guy, right? Look at this. And it was just like, oh, my goodness. I mean, he was, he was loud. He had bad hair. He wore gaudy suits, and he's screaming, you know, demons to come out of vacuum cleaners and everything else. And, and, uh, and furthermore, um, you know, he's telling everybody to send in money. So I just stayed away. The guy horrified me. And it was embarrassing. But the truth is, even if he didn't have bad hair and gaudy suits, and even if he wasn't so relentlessly trying to get money, it was embarrassing for him to suggest that every physical problem has a spiritual root. And this idea that many people have in, because of passages like this, uh, this idea is, is really one of the first things that, that uh, unnerved me after I came to faith. I've said it took me quite a while to sort of make uh, peace with the claims of Christ and put my weight down and step over the line. And um, after I did that, I remember sitting in the friend's basement and I'm telling him that I've, I've made a decision for Christ. And I knew that he wouldn't be happy. He was not. Um, but I was, I was very excited that I'd finally done this and I wanted him to follow me. And he said, I, I'm not going anywhere close to that. He goes, you know, every time somebody gets a cold in the New Testament, someone's trying to cast the demon of having a cold out of them. He goes, he goes, I can't believe you believe this stuff. And I remember at the time, I didn't know the Bible very well, I remember at the time going, oh, yeah, I forgot about the demon thing. What in the world am I going to do with that? How am I going to make sense of that? So here's just a couple things. Uh, there's no suggestion that every physical problem has a spiritual root. It, and as a matter of fact, the only time we really see much about demons is in the Gospels around Christ. Almost nothing in the Old Testament. And after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, very little as well. It's obvious that, that during the time of Christ, his presence is causing such a sort of a cosmic struggle between good and evil, that all kinds of surprising things were happening. So the people there are surprised. And, and so this isn't something we see on every page. There's no suggestion that, uh, that that's what's going on. There's really, in the Gospels, there's six big instances where demons come into play. So it's not on every page. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Let me keep reading. Verse 40. Jesus is speaking, or excuse me, the man is speaking. I begged your disciples to drive uh, it out, but they could not. So Jesus replies, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So Jesus is clearly not happy with the 12 for their inability uh, to move forward. Verse 40, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Um, so this miracle, by the way, is new. We don't, we don't have any Old Testament examples of, of anything happening like this. So in the Old Testament, the prophets would occasionally perform a miracle, multiply food, something like that would happen. But we don't have anything with demons. So this is the first time 
we see somebody going toe-to-toe with evil and triumphing. Um, Secondly, I'll just note um, that there's no theatrics behind this, right? No bad hair, no gaudy suit, no prayer towel, no send in your money. Jesus just sort of calmly and quietly rebukes the Spirit. And, And what we have really is... What you see in the Gospels is as Jesus is moving from town to town, he just brings the kingdom with him. Right? He's fixing things that are wrong. Healing people, rebuking evil, challenging unjust systems, reaching to the margins of, of, of society and, and pulling in the people that everybody else is ignoring. He's just bringing his vision and values and he's making things right. And that's what we have here. So... One, um, one last reading here, verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to, you, to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man, and remember that's the title he uses for himself most often, 80 times, big claim to power, goes back to the book of Daniel, and the Son of Man is the one who's going to come in judgment. Every knee will bow. Every, everybody is going to yield power to the Son of Man. Jesus is making a big claim here when he says, the Son of Man, talking about himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Um, Jesus is going to leave Galilee and start his march to Jerusalem. He's about two and a half years into his public ministry here. He's going to be marching and, and stopping and preaching along the way, uh, going to Jerusalem to die. He will repeatedly tell the disciples that he's going to die, uh, that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer, and they will not get it. And many people don't get this passage. They're like, what is going on? Jesus heals a boy, and the next thing you know, he's, he's saying, I'm going to die I mean, this is like, you know, whiplash. Why, why is he doing this? Well, again, he's answering this question that Pilate asked. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Savior of the world. He's going to lay down his life as the sacrificial lamb, right? This is all part of providing the answer. So, again, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what we have here is another illustration of how Jesus is different than you and me, better than you and me. Not just a teacher, not just a moral revolutionary, but in fact, God himself, he has power over evil. Well, having said that, there are two things that I think demand a little bit of comment from this passage. One of them is about healing and one of them is about evil. When it comes to healing, there are two questions. The first question would be, is God still healing people today? Right? Can I expect, can I pray for God to make me well, to extend my life? Okay. This is an easy question. The answer is yes. And we are instructed to pray for healing, and we do. I do often. James uh, 5, 14 says, if any of you is sick, you know, invite the elders to come and pray for you that, that you might get well. The elders meet every Sunday morning to pray. Uh, there's always people up front at the beginning of the service, welcome, or at the end of the service, welcome an opportunity to pray for you. So, yes, we can pray for that. And I can point to a number of folks who sort of against the medical odds, right, see their life extended in this congregation. So, yes, is God still healing people?
But that leads um, to the second question, which is, why isn't he doing it more? Okay, in, in the New Testament, in the Bible generally, healings are never reported as a big deal. I mean, when, when, when the biblical writers want to get our attention and say God is awesome, they point to creation, they point to the parting of the Red Sea, they point to a number of things that he's done, but they don't point to healing. And the implication is that healing is sort of a relatively easy thing for God to do. It's not a big deal. But if that's the case, then why doesn't he do it more? Right? Why doesn't he heal my child? Why doesn't he heal my husband? Why doesn't he heal my mom? Why doesn't he heal me? Well, this is a hard question to answer. Uh, But there are some things I think that that can be said and at least should be noted. Um, Can God heal us? Absolutely. We're instructed to pray to that end. But it appears that he often has a different plan. And in fact, that, um, that he is often going to use horrible things, at least things that we would describe as being horrible, for our own good. And I know of a number of people who will say to me, and I wrote about this in, in book five, people who will say to me, you know what, in retrospect, getting cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Right? This struggle, losing my job, was the best thing that ever happened to me. They'll go and they'll name something that it just seems to be horrible. And they'll say, it's been a good thing. I see that now. When I was at sort of my darkest point in, uh, in the stroke recovery, the three things that I kept going back to and reminding myself of was, I know God loves me. He's, he's withheld no good thing from me. He sent his own son to die in my place. I, I know God loves me. Secondly, I know I can trust him. I don't get this. I don't understand this. This doesn't seem right. But I do believe that if I understood everything as he does, I would pick this path. I can trust him. He's got my, he's got my back. And, and third, eternity changes everything. Right? If I'm going to live forever, <laughs> then, that, then that really reframes the momentary suffering and difficulties that I might have to go through. So I think... We, we have to say God often has a different agenda uh, than we can understand. The third thing that I'll say about um, healing is sometimes God seems to heal people through supernatural means. Other times, and I would say most times, God seems to work through the agency of, of medicine, doctors and nurses and other people. And that sometimes it's really hard to tell what's happening. So it's been uh, almost 11 months since I had this, this spontaneous uh, arterial vestibular dissection that led to a stroke. And um, I went back about six weeks ago, I went back to RIC, downtown where I stayed for three weeks. And I went back to say thank you to the, to the doctors and nurses and therapists and others that that cared for me. And it was a very moving uh, experience because many of them did not recognize me. And all of them were saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe how, how good you're doing. 
And, and, and some of them have tears in their eyes because they go, I just don't get to see this. I just want to see people that I've worked with get better like you've gotten better. And, and it was more than one at that point said, you're a miracle. And I've noted that over the course of the last 11 months, I've had a number of people tell me that I'm a miracle. Um, and the more people know about what happened to me, the more, the more that they're doctors and, and nurses and others, the more likely they're to say, "What well, you are a miracle. Now, uh, I don't know how my recovery happened. I mean, I don't understand. I know that there were hundreds, thousands of people praying for me. And maybe in heaven we'll be able to see how all these things go together. I know many of you were praying for me. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't know to what extent it was, it was God superintending my recovery. But I could sometimes, I, there were days where I could see myself getting better every five minutes. It was just shocking. Uh, how much of that recovery is just good, good medical care? I, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I do know this. When people say, you're a miracle. I look and I go, well, my recovery doesn't seem to match the kind of healings we see in the New Testament. For starters, they all seem to be instant, right? The blind see, the deaf hear, the, the people that can't walk suddenly can, right? And I, I mean, I've had, you know, 10 and a half months of therapy, right? I'm still in therapy. Hundreds of hours of, you know, standing on one foot and, you know, trying to do this stuff and all of that. So, so it's, it has, wasn't instantaneous. Secondly, it's not complete like I understand these miracles to be. A couple weeks ago, we were down in Mexico for our 30th wedding anniversary. And uh, I, I didn't go swimming because, again, they think that swimming is what led to the dissection that led to the stroke. But I went snorkeling because I, I don't have to use the same kind of breathing motions and other things. So I went snorkeling. And I came in, after I'd been out there for a while, I came into the, the shore, the beach, and it was sort of rocky right there. So instead of standing up and walking in, I sort of stayed horizontal until I was in about a foot of water. And then I sat down, and I just was going to get up from there and walk in. So it's a foot of water, but it's, it's the ocean. And so sometimes it's two feet of water because a wave is coming in, and sometimes it's like two inches of water. Well, my balance is not perfect, right? I have this here. It's a little bit of a crutch. And my balance is not perfect. I couldn't stand up. So I'd get up, and a wave would hit me, and I'd fall down. And so I'd get up, and I'd fall backwards and fall down. So then I'd, I'd kneel trying to time it with the wave, but the, I'd be kneeling, and the wave would wipe me out, right? So I'm looking. I mean, I'm laughing during this whole time. Like, good grief, I'm in, I'm in a foot of water, and I can't get in. And Sherry's like you know, eight feet away, but she'd hurt her knees. She, could, she couldn't come in and help me. And I, I mean, I just looked like a typical drunken tourist, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a foot of water and I'm just splashing around, crawling, trying to stand up, laughing. And it's like, I can't get up. Finally, Sherry says to this older guy, she says, he, he, he hasn't been drinking. He had a stroke. He, he doesn't have any balance. And the guy's like, oh, well, I'll go help him. And so he comes out and, and helps me in. And so, I mean, it's not like I would say I'm a, I'm a great poster child for a miracle here. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I couldn't stand up in a foot of water. So it's, it's not like it's a, a perfect outcome yet. Now, the third thing that I think we need to hold on to when we talk about healing is that 
the purpose of, of healings in the Bible are not the healings. They are signs for God's power. And in this case, they're pointing to Jesus. Right? Everybody that Jesus heals has died. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus dies. Right? It's not a permanent solution. It's not, it's not the purpose of what Jesus showed up to do. The miracles are big arrows pointing to Jesus. That's the point of the passage. Look at this guy. He can do something no one else can do. He can defeat evil. He can heal people. Right? He's, he's different than everybody else because he's God. Okay, well then, just uh, ever so briefly, a couple comments about uh, evil. I'm circling back to the beginning. There's really three views out there today. There's the view that says evil doesn't exist, which is, which is advanced by secular people and by people who often buy into an Eastern philosophy that says there's really no... It's, it's hard to separate good and bad and other things, and, and uh, those are value judgments that are often not affirmed in that worldview. There's a second camp that says... There's a big titanic struggle between good and evil that we're locked in, and, and both good and evil have their deities, God and Satan, and they're locked in this ongoing struggle. And then there's a third view, which we find in the Bible, which says uh, good and evil uh, are... It's not the second view, because evil is not equal to good. Okay, so God, God is all-powerful, and Satan is very limited and was created by God. It's not dualism. It's somehow God has allowed evil to go on for his purposes. But, but it will eventually be destroyed. So, so these are the three views that are out there. And, and the Bible is quite clear that evil is real and that it exists. And it's, it's been hard in a culture where um, I have, I've had enough education to know that we're not supposed to believe in evil. It's been hard to affirm evil. But I, I've come to the point where I'm not only, I mean, I came to the point long ago where I said, okay, it's not just that evil is real. There are spiritual agents of darkness that are real. Right? I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't come happily to the belief in demons and Satan. Who, who in their right mind would be happy to believe in, in Satan? Right? But I came to this view because I could not, first of all, make sense of Jesus in his ministry without affirming that there was some personal spiritual forces of darkness trying to undermine people. Secondly, I couldn't make sense of stories that were being related to me by people that I respect. Now, full disclosure here, I don't have a lot of experience with evil. I, I didn't, you know, I just was never attracted when my friends were going, oh, let's have a seance. Let's go to a, let's get a Ouija board. Let's go to a palm reader. Let's, you know, do this. It was just sort of like, eh, that sounds like it might be trouble. At best, it's just a vaudeville circus act, and they're going to take your money. But maybe there's something there, and if there's something there, I don't want to be anywhere close to it. And I would say, don't go anywhere close to that stuff. It's just, again, I'm sure most of it is just, just people ripping you off, uh, but I think some of it is at least efforts to tap into a dark power that you do not want to go close to. Um, and I, I, so I don't have experiences with that, and I've never sought out opportunities to pray for people that are 
that are supposedly demon-possessed. I've been in those meetings. I've gone places to pray for people that others think are possessed. And I've been in places where I think, okay, something is wrong here, and I don't know what it is. Something evil is happening here. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but I don't want to be here. Um, So I've also got friends, especially those that went onto the mission field that come back with stories These are people that I trust, and they tell me stories, and I go, yeah, okay. I don't know why I wouldn't believe that. I believe in a God who is a spirit. I believe in angels. Why would I not believe in in evil angels other than I just don't want to? Um, So I think that this is the story. Now, here's what I would say about this, and with this I close. Um, Don't be obsessed with evil. Don't fear it. Right? The, the great hymn by Martin Luther, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, talks about evil and says, uh, look, um, if we in our own strength uh, were confiding, then our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the, God, the man of God's own choosing, Jesus. And it goes on then to say, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. We tremble not for him. He's talking about the prince of darkness. We tremble not for him, um, the prince of darkness grim. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So we don't... Look, the whole point of this passage is that Jesus is bigger than evil. Right? So we don't have to fear evil. We just have to avoid it. And we have to not mock it. We have to understand. It's not helpful if we forget that we're in a battle of eternal consequences. And there are dark forces trying to undermine us. But run to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And uh, all this is taken care of by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Once again, we thank you for uh, this book recorded by Luke outlining some of of, um, what Jesus taught and did. Um, Father, there's there's obviously two big prayer requests. One is for healing. I know there are people here who are broken, who are struggling, who are frustrated, who are distraught for their own physical health or that of somebody they, they dearly love. And we continue to bring them before you and to pray for your favor and that you would extend life. And uh, the second is, Father, keep us from evil. Keep us, remove temptation. Destroy, shut down the evil one. Uh, May we have an ability to see reality a little bit more clearly than we do and uh, to understand the need and opportunity we have to run towards Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.